Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, as we are all doing a little bit of holiday shopping, maybe for our hams and our turkeys. Our hams and yams. Our hams and yams and turkeys and nothing rhymes with turkey except maybe tofurkey. It would be interesting, maybe, on your grocery trip, listeners, to think about your attitude towards that food that you will be making. Right. Even though uh, we don't have a very like a holiday specific thing to talk about, holiday is the season of feasting. Like presents are cool, sure, but what I really enjoy even more than that is putting a lot of food. In my face. That's right. Yeah, to the point where, like, you have to unbutton the pants. Maybe just put on stretchy pants, get it over with. Yeah, and in addition to that, speaking of stretchy pants, the holidays are also the most wonderful time of the year for lovers. Traditionally, you know, you think about, like, New Year's kisses Mm -hmm. and cuddling up, you know, with chestnuts (laughs) roasting on an open fire, Uh kissing under mistletoe. So why not combine all of these things in a holiday conversation, a feast for your ears about food and how food is is seeped into many different parts of our culture. Yeah, but also how pervasive sex is in the culture and how maybe food and sex have swapped places. Yeah, and how there's like, if anything, so intertwined. So to kick things off, I've got a quote here from Dr. Helen Fisher, who we've referenced many times on the podcast. She's done a lot of uh, neurological research on attraction and romance, and she's also the chief scientific advisor to Match.com. And she says, food, sex, and courtship go hand in hand in nature. Food also informs what and how a partner eats like with their hands, uh, if they share such crucial things about their habits, health, and empathy. They're also built to want an adventurous eater, a sign that this individual will be flexible, a vital trait for loving and parenting. Would you agree that, you know, if you go on a, on a meal date with uh, <laughs> someone you're attracted to, uh-huh. that their eating style, what they order, influences your attraction? Maybe. I mean, I guess I don't want to go on a first date with a guy who orders a salad. Yeah, I understand that. Well, or, but I don't really want to go on a first date with a guy who orders a turkey leg and eats it with his bare hands either. I don't know. What if he ate the turkey leg, though, with a knife and fork? That would be weird. Then that would be just like George Costanza with the Snickers bar. I don't know. There's really no good in between. There is no good in between. <laughs> so basically, never take Caroline on a meal date. <laughs> I, 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 bowling. Bowling is good. Um, but uh, one of the reasons why we're asking this question of is food the new sex is because in January 2009, a gal named Mary Eberstadt, who works at Stanford's Hoover Institution, which is a little more conservative leaning, we should say, because this will make more sense as we talk about the essay. Uh, she she asked whether or not food and sex have switched places in Western culture. Yeah, basically the attitudes towards sex were, you know, at one time very, very conservative. Not that they're not now, but she she basically uses Housewife Betty from 1958 and Betty's present-day granddaughter, Jennifer, a 30-year-old, to point out the differences in attitudes back then and now as far as food and sex go and how Betty would have used 
canned and jarred food, lots of dairy, red meat, refined sugar. She didn't care what she ate, as long as she liked it, right? And then there's Jennifer, who's all like, "No, but you should be a vegetarian. I don't eat red meat because of the saturated fat. Buy organic." And so she just paints. So that's the food attitude, right? Like different food attitudes from the 50s and now. And then compares the attitudes towards sex, which she says are like completely flip flopped. Right, as you can imagine, old Betty in 1958 has uh, more conservative views on sex, where it is restricted. And, Be- and Betty is really just, uh, you know, the signpost for culture, capital yeah. C culture at the time. Uh, you know, where you know sex should be restricted to a very heteronormative framework of husband and wife, even though, of course, premarital sex was happening, but nobody talked about it. What? Um, and whereas Jennifer, with her, you know, organic cabinets and pescatarianism is just having sex with whoever she wants. Yeah, she would never judge anyone for their sexual activity. And while Eberstadt makes, uh, you know, it's an interesting theory to think about, like, and you could say, maybe at first blush, oh, well, sure, that, that switch, I'll buy that switch. But at the same time, though, there's also a lot of moralizing that is going on in this essay that uh, some people were not too fond of because she's saying that uh, she was comparing the junk sex quote of today with the junk food of yesteryear. Um, but nah, I don't know that that's, that that's really the case. I mean, it. not that it's a terrible point. I mean, it is interesting to think about changing attitudes one way or the other. I mean, she, she points out that Betty thought that there was a clear black and white right and wrong about sex and thought that her attitudes should be universal. Mm -hmm. And that's opposite for this imaginary Jennifer who thinks that her attitudes on food should be universal and that everybody should be eating clean, eating organic, you know, local, all this stuff. And that, of course, I'm right and y'all are wrong for not believing that. Yeah, um, and I also found it interesting that, that this argument is framed only in terms of two women because mm-hmm. the way that we judge women for sex and how they eat and therefore their body shape is completely different and far more judgmental than how that is applied to men. But that's just a bit of an aside. Uh, so there were some some people that we've mentioned who... We're not totally on board with this, quote, unsubstantiated generalization dressed up as an easily digested social theory. So says David Bell, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins University. Yeah, he says basically why her theory doesn't work, according to Bell, is that, yes, Americans ate a lot of things back in the day that we now consider unhealthy, but he points out a glance through magazines of the time reveals an emphasis on healthy diets and a strong differentiation between good and bad foods. So, he says, what has changed is not that people have suddenly become judgmental, but just the content of their judgments has changed. Yeah, and when when it comes to to food as well, like things were certainly not as laissez-faire in 1958 when Betty was living even though Betty might not have had as much access to like fresh organic uh, produce and things as we might now. Um, and it also ignores how obesity at that time was still considered something of a moral 
weakness. And it's only been in more recent history that science has uncovered things like well, with the podcast that we did not too long ago on how hormones influence that. There's a lot more to it than just what you're putting in your body. And also uh, Hugo Schweizer, who's a gender studies professor, uh, points out, too, that it was in the 1920s that we have the emergence of good versus bad eating habits. Uh, and this is also, again, something that's more applied to women. Um, and it reminded me of the 1963 book by Muriel Spark, The Girls of Slender Means, um, that I read recently. And it uh, tracks these women in England post- World War II, and there's a character in there who is obsessive about her food, and like a, a lot of it has to do with them, um, you know, selectively eating things in order to stay slim. So we were still, you know, back in the day, it's no, it's nothing new for us to be choosy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people also are arguing, not only Schweitzer, but also Andrew Sullivan at The Atlantic, are basically arguing that maybe Eberstadt is putting too much weight on the morality aspect of both sex and food, and that they don't exactly line up when you flip-flop them. Yeah, so perhaps this, uh, you know, kind of cultural argument that food is the new sex, uh, you know, in theory, doesn't really hold up. I'm going to go ahead and say that I don't, I don't by that so much, just because it's too sweeping of a statement to make. But when I think about, is food the new sex, I more think about it on the level of, like, would I rather have this brownie than have intercourse like or be you know intimate or close to another person right like do we eat instead of nurturing uh, instead of feeding our relationships right i don't know depends on the brownie i guess <laughs> well it seems like the, it is kind of this meme that's taken off online because how many headlines do you see where it's like women think about chocolate more than <laughs> sex men think about well, sex more than sex. <laughs> so, yeah. So speaking of who is thinking about what, when and more than whom, women in particular, surveys have found, do think about food more than sex. Maybe. 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 Because these are <laughs> these studies are coming from diet companies. Yeah. That are surveying women. Dieters. Exclusively. And, and female. Yeah. Dieters. So yeah. Um, this was written about in time in December, 2010, a survey survey by shape smart, which is a group that creates personal health plans for its customers found that 25% of women think about food every 30 minutes compared to 10% of women who think about sex over the same time span. Yeah, but you know what I found more concerning? You know, who cares whether or not, like, women think about... I I, I think about food more than sex, because you know what? I'm hungry all the time. Like, <laughs> well, like ghrelin. Yeah, like, I can have a sandwich in my cubicle. I can't have <laughs> sex in my cubicle. Um, but what I find more concerning is the statistic that, like, 60% of women in relationships are not happy eating in front of their partner, and half of them are shy on dressing in front of their partner. Maybe we should be thinking about those things more yeah. the sh- these shame factors and these surveys are not helping shame factors um but to toss out some more of these questionable yeah these questionable survey results there was one from uh, match.com and it found that if forced to choose 39% of single women would rather give up sex than their favorite food for a year and 16% of single men would do the same thing yeah i <laughs> I, I don't know um there was another study by Atkins, 
another diet company that found that 54% of UK women thought about food more than sex, and that just over 37% thought about eating more than they thought about their significant others. That's a lot. That's a lot of not thinking about your significant other, I guess. Well, what about if you're, does it count if you're thinking about eating with your significant other? Like what you're going to make for the dinner that you will eat together? Maybe. I don't, apparently, like, I am totally going to bat for thinking about food all of the time. Well, there was another stat from that study that kind of made me raise an eyebrow. They found that 10% of the women surveyed would feel worse cheating on a diet than cheating on a partner. I mean, I guess that's a minority, but still. Yeah, and I, I'm, again, like, we're talking, we should be more concerned about all the body shaming that's going on rather than, like, what may or may not be happening in the bedroom, in my opinion. Um, but thankfully, there was a study, I think we've, uh, cited it before. I know that I've, um, blogged about it, um, a while ago. This came out of Ohio State and totally, a debunked the myth that men think about sex every seven seconds or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it also found that because it took a, we finally have a sample pool of men and women to look at. And men do think about sex more than women, but they also think about food more than women as well. They think about, uh, sex 19 times a day on average. And these are college undergraduate dudes. I'd be curious to see how it changes over age. Uh, but an average of 17 times a day for sex and 18 times a day for food. So it's pretty equal. But for women, we still got, you know, doing it on the brain. <laughs> on average, we think about sex 10 times a day and think about food 15 times a day. Yeah. So men are thinking about sex and food more than we are. But we're still thinking about sex and food quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But what what do you think is in that gap, though, where, where it's like <laughs> in the gaps between like the, the food sex thoughts? My that roommate, we're having. my roommate would say that women are thinking about shopping. <sighs> I know he's such a dude. Yeah, I'm going to do an, uh, to that. <laughs> I'm probably thinking about. Um, nope, still food. <laughs> still, still food. Yeah, no, I start planning like, what am I going to do for lunch around 10:30? Because usually 10.30 is about snack time. Yeah. I've had breakfast at around 8. 10.30, I'm, I'm starting to need a granola bar. By noon, I'm like, yeah, it's time to get a sandwich. Let's change the title of this <laughs> podcast to Kristen and Caroline's Food Diaries. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, on that note, though, and after this, we can move on. It is true that at 9.30 this morning, I did. I, I looked up at the clock and realized that I was planning tomorrow night's meal. At 9.30 in the morning today. I don't know what that says. You know, if you run out of tasks, maybe it's time to start that shopping list. Yeah, I'm pumped about making that grocery store. Um, So what happens, though, in relationships? Like when maybe food does start to overshadow the bedroom. Yeah, well, you brought up that whole thing about is a brownie more important than (laughs) intimacy with your partner? John DeVore over at the Frisky wrote a column about this, that he he was really worried that people were making food more important in their relationships than sex. And he says that when that happens, the relationship is over. There's no more excitement. You clearly are not thinking about each other and getting each other to the bedroom. You're just thinking about like, hmm, what takeout menu should we peruse this evening? Oh, but it's great eating takeout with someone else. I know. I yeah, but I, I I don't find a problem thinking about eating with a partner. Right. 
But he's saying that a month in, if you get more excited about perusing the takeout menus together than picking new sexual positions, you guys are donezo. Yeah, I mean, and that sounds like it's more a case of just a barometer of your attraction yeah. to the other person. Well, he also brings up the junk food versus junk sex argument, saying like, well, sex is omnipresent, cheap, it's so disposable that it's easy to forget. It's one of our primary pursuits as humans. So maybe we should be eating at like bajillion star restaurants and then going home and having very, very interesting intimate sex with each other. <laughs> bajillion star sex. <laughs> bajillion star sex, yeah. Frommers rated this sex. <laughs> Um, and like, it makes total sense too that food and sex are so intertwined. We haven't even talked about like, like food sex, you know, like that horrible scene in, uh, Varsity Blues with the whipped cream. Or nine and a half weeks. Yeah, I didn't even see that. I don't even, I don't even want to know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it makes sense though that these things are so intertwined and we do obsess with both of them so much because it's one of our three like primal needs as humans. We need mm-hmm. sleep, we need sex, and we need food in order to survive. And that's it. And in our brains, these two things are very closely intertwined because of how eating and having sex, especially good sex, uh, services our reward systems and makes us feel all nice inside. Yeah, because all these drives are coming from the same place, right? The hypothalamus? Yes, well, so Kristen and I, um, if you if you're up on your podcast, ladies and gentlemen, we did a podcast on hormones and obesity and the hormones that drive you to eat, that make you hungry, make you like, okay, well, I'm not hungry anymore. I'm not going to eat myself to death, which is a good thing to have. Um, those brain chemicals do inhibit and stimulate feeding. They also seem to be involved in the modulation of mood and perhaps reward. Similar to, like, the good hormones that are released when you're having sex with someone. Right. Um, and sexual behavior also regulated by the brain, and there's a lot going on with the hypothalamus as well, but we also have the spinal cord and endocrine glands involved, and it motivates, like, our sex drive motivates a wide range of planned behaviors in the same way that our hunger drive motivates these behaviors. It's like full body Engagement we, when we are hungry, when oh we God. want to eat, and when we want to have sex. Right. Like, I don't know if you've seen me hangry. I don't like, want to see you hangry. <laughs> that is quite a drive. When I am hungry and like, okay, I can start to get hungry. Like, okay, things are going fine. It's all right. If I can just get a granola bar here in a second, I'll be okay. And then I start to get angry and I just can't stop until I'm like that's I'm like the Snickers bar commercial. Some people see red, Caroline sees sandwiches. <laughs> Watch out. (laughs) That's right. But there's also interesting sleep studies, like all these studies that have shown all of the horrific things that can happen to your brain and your body and your whole system if you don't get enough sleep. And that can really mess with a lot of things in your body, temperature control, metabolic balance, immune function. And, again, we've got hormones because hormones essential to sexual development and reproductive capability are released on a schedule that is related to sleep. Yeah, it's all intertwined in the circle of life. We, uh, you know, in order to have good sexual functioning, we need good physical health, which requires the good food, which also necessitates good sleep and, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So it's a good thing that we are so obsessed, in a way, with food 
and sex. But what happens though when some wires do get crossed and things like eating to soothe emotions rather than hunger yeah. or as replacements for uh, sex or other kinds of needs takes over. Yeah, that would be emotional eating. Yeah. And reading about emotional eating, because I was like, I, I'm mentally stronger than this. I'm not an emotional eater. And then, of course, as I'm reading over exactly what emotional eating is, what constitutes it, I was like, oh, God, I am an emotional eater. Because it's not that I eat if I'm sad or angry or happy necessarily it's really when i'm bored well tell tell our listeners what emotional eating is yeah so basically you're trying to soothe something in yourself when you're eating emotionally and some signs of that are that emotional hunger comes on suddenly so you're like oh, cupcakes whereas physical hunger comes on gradually with emotional eating, you crave a specific food, likely a comfort food, which people eat to basically obtain or maintain a good feeling. Yeah, whereas if that ghrelin kicks in and you're super hungry, then you are open to a wide range of options. Right. Like, yes, I'll go with the chicken. That's fine. Whereas if you're emotionally hungry... You're going to be like, oh, my God, I have to have cake and I have to have it now. Yeah. And not only that, when you are eating for hunger, once the body's full, it'll release the leptin that tamps down on that uh, signal saying eat, eat, eat. Whereas if you are emotional eating, the leptin isn't going to come in. And so you're much more likely to overeat all the cupcakes. All of them. Well, is it also emotional eating? I feel like every time I have a beer, I really want some salty snacks. Mm-hmm. Is that just, I don't know if that's something different. I think maybe that's the beer hormone that's <laughs> released in your brain. <laughs> it could be. Um, one interesting study that we found, this is in the Journal of Clinical Investigation, August 2011, talks about emotional eating. You know, do we, do we maybe just like eat that cupcake and just mentally kind of feel better? Or is there something more to it? And this study found that we do receive a soothing effect on a biological level when we eat emotionally, when we eat that comfort food. And basically what happened, researchers fed subjects through a feeding tube. So you don't see the cupcake or whatever. You're just getting either a solution of saturated fatty acids because comfort foods are often fatty or a saline solution through a tube. Then the researchers expose the subjects to sad stuff, pictures of sad people. They listen to sad music. And they found that the subjects who received the fat were less depressed than the control group who received the saline solution. And for further proof, I'm like getting super excited. My voice is going way up. They did an MRI that showed that the solution, the fatty acid solution, actually dampened activity in parts of the brain involved in sadness. So basically hormones are getting released similar to sexual activity. Yeah, and that's controlling all of the facets and rituals of eating a fatty comfort food. Yeah. So in that way, yes, we can we can totally replace sex with food, which probably will not have the healthiest results though because yeah. maybe it's that that saturated fat, apparently. Why can also can we do a podcast on why the unhealthiest foods are the tastiest foods? I guess it goes back to uh, our evolutionary past when uh, it's we we're cued into fatty things for energy storage to keep us going. But still, in the modern era, really, really chaps me. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, because the co-author of the study does point out that evolution has made every aspect of feeding as rewarding as possible. Although now, of course, that may not be a good thing because if we get rewarded by cupcakes every five minutes we might not be very healthy anymore. Right, because that, that kicked in when food was scarce. But now right. food is everywhere. Mm-hmm. We are surrounded by foods, and usually foods that are not good for us. Well, maybe Eberstadt would argue that we're also surrounded by sex all the time that's not good for us. Cheap extramarital sex all over the place. What would Jennifer say? Jennifer would say... Uh, she would say yes, that, that, that sex is, uh, just cheapening our, our lives because we're just treating it like, basically like ho-hos. We're just eating them. We're just <laughs> eating it and it's making us. Or would that be better? Well, no, though, she would say that the sex are the new Twinkies, you know? Oh, yeah. So anyway, but one thing, not only are we surrounded though, by these readily accessible foods. We are also now visually, even if we're not eating, we are visually surrounded by images of food. And we're talking about food porn. And in our next episode, Feast Part 2, because we've got to take a break. It's Christmas Eve, and <laughs> we need to gorge ourselves to prepare for That's Feast right. 2 to talk about more specifically like what happens with the impact of all this food porn we're now surrounded with. Yeah. And foodie culture. Yeah. Moving the conversation away from sex a little bit into our culture at large and our general obsessions with food. Like, why do we even, like, we watch food on television now. I can't, it's so hard for me. But we'll get into that in the next one. We'll get it. Yeah, tune in. We, Caroline and I are going to take a break and <laughs> break all of the rules and eat every single ham. thing that we can. Lots of ham. <laughs> ham only. We're going to need a lot of water. <laughs> I'm going to make a ham sandwich. I'm going to put some ham between two pieces of ham, maybe some mustard. Wrap it in bacon. <laughs> Call it a day. Mmm, pig. So we want to hear from you, though. Do you think that uh, food is the new sex? Has food ever replaced sex? In a relationship that you've had, uh, let us know all of your thoughts and holiday wishes that we can make come true. Ham. Ham. Momstuff at discovery.com. I hope that we have not offended any vegetarians or vegans out there. Tofurkey. Mm. Yes, there we go. Now, before we get to our listener letters, got a quick word from our sponsor that brought us this episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You. And it is audible.com, where you can go and choose from hundreds of thousands of downloadable titles to listen to all sorts of ebooks of your choosing. And, uh, listeners of Stuff Mom Never Told You can actually go to audiblepodcast.com slash Stuff Mom, don't worry, I will repeat that URL, uh, and download a free audiobook of your choosing. And since we're talking all about food, I would recommend going over to audiblepodcast.com slash Stuff Mom and downloading for free In Defense of Food by Michael Pollan, who is one of my favorite food writers out there. He works for the New York Times. So don't delay. Head on over to audiblepodcast.com slash stuff mom and thanks to our sponsor audible for bringing us this episode and now let's get to some listener mail 
And now back to our listener letters. And I said uh, before our, our word from our sponsor that we uh, we had letters, but we actually have a letter because this letter was so comprehensive and packed with information. Wanted to to share it, and it is in response to our episode that we did a while ago on crazy cat ladies and whether or not this uh, parasite is making cat owners crazy. So yes, this is a very extensive letter from Aaron. Covers a lot of ground about T. Gandhi, which is the parasite that you know you can potentially pick up from your cat and become insane, relatively speaking. Okay, so she says that we missed some key factors, Kristen. Uh Uh-oh. I know. She said, I don't think you ever mentioned how the cats pick up Toxo. Cats become infected after consuming intermediate hosts like rodents, birds, and other small animals, harboring tissue cysts. Cats may also become infected directly by ingestion of sporulated oocysts. Possibly, that's how it's pronounced. But the prevalence of this oocyst shedding in cats is very low, even though at least 15 to 40% of cats have been infected with toxoplasma at some point. This means very few cats at any one time are actually able to pass their infection on to people. Infection is more common in pets that go outside, hunt, or are fed raw meat. You also didn't mention that humans can get T. Gandhi from meat. Animals bred for human consumption and wild game may also become infected with tissue cysts after ingestion of those technical things, the sporulated stuff in the environment. Humans can become infected by any of several routes. Bullet points. Eating undercooked meats of animals harboring tissue cysts. Consuming food or water contaminated with cat feces. Blood transfusion or organ transplantation. Transplacentally from mother to fetus. And she points out the risk of contracting toxoplasma infection. From cleaning the litter box of a house cat is very small, especially if a few simple precautions are observed. Clean your cat's litter box every day. Always wash your hands with soap and water after cleaning the litter box. Keep your cat indoors. Keep sandboxes covered so outdoor cats don't contaminate them with stool. Cook all meat, especially pork, lamb, mutton, and wild game to an internal temperature of 153 degrees Fahrenheit. Ensure children don't eat sand, which I think is a general good policy anyway. Uh, she goes on to say that a lot of the T. Gandhi research is currently being criticized, so maybe we just shouldn't worry about it as much. And she asks us, please do not encourage cat fear. So thank you, Aaron, for, for laying down some info. Yeah, we would never want to encourage cat fear. No! If anyone heard my story about Sir Lancelot... Come on. The cat that is not my own that I have named, then you probably know I am a felinophile. Uh, I made that up. I'm not <laughs> sure if felinophile is the correct way to say cat lover. But you get my point. Uh, and also, another point is this. Happy holidays to all. And if you are listening to this on your holiday break, congratulations and thank you. And may all of your holiday wishes come true. And feast away. Go for it. Uh... And if you have anything you'd like to send our way, again, our email address is momstuffatdiscovery.com. Give us a holiday present and follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. You can follow us on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook as well. And if you are bored over the holidays and want to get that brain real smart, you know the best place to go. It's our website, howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 